You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. And before we hear from Hari Kondabolu, two quick things to advertise. One is Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival this Sunday. I'm going to be interviewing Spencer Jones, a.k.a. The Herbert, at 4pm in Bob's Blunderbuss. So come along to that. It's pay what you want. You can get there, uh, come in free and pay at the end if you'd like. And then at 8 o'clock that night, or in fact 8.15, I'm going to be at the venue called Heroes. It's a pub, I believe. Sorry, it's a pub called The Criterion uh, under Heroes of Fringe, which is Bob Slayer again. Uh, and I'm going to be doing a, uh, a work in progress of my new show, provisionally entitled This Is Actually My Sixth Rodeo. It's going to be a lot of fun. This is going to contain a lot of the bits you've heard me talking about in the end waffly sections of the last few episodes. Uh, I've definitely got the, the bones of a strong half hour and, uh, and I'll just smile at you for the remaining 25 minutes. Um, so those, those are both happening this Sunday, the 21st of February at Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival. And uh, also there are tickets still available for Dave Gorman on the 7th of March and Ramesh Ranganathan on the 4th of April. Both of those are going to be live Comedians Comedian podcast interviews in London at the Soho Theatre. Go to SohoTheatre.com for tickets and enter the discount code FAFF, F-A-F-F, in order to receive a 25% discount. This is the wonderful... Hari Kondabolu. You've been doing uh, the, the... You've been doing a run at Soho. I just started yeah. last week, because I tried to get to see you on a Friday, and I'm yeah. afraid I couldn't, because I ended up getting myself. Oh, but right, I right. heard your album, and I've, I remember your set from Russell Howard. Oh, that was a fun set, yeah. Yeah, that was some time ago. So was that like the first time you... Was that while you were studying in London? No, no, when I did Russell Howard. Yeah. Um, no, I had been doing comedy for a little while. Um, I'm trying to figure out how I got over to to Russell Howard's like, because it wasn't like I was, I think, I can't remember if it was before or after, no, it was before Edinburgh, so I don't really know how I ended up getting that set, but it's kind of great that it happened, because it's definitely like the, the best thing I have online, I think, people get a good sense of what I do, and it's like a, a pretty broad range of material and the kinds of like stylistic things yes. I do, so it's a pretty good sample. Yes, yeah. I was listening back to it, having, uh, uh, having listened to your album, Waiting yeah. 2042, yeah. and it's interesting hearing the, like a sharper version of the white Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> chocolate, you know, white chocolate, white Jesus. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we, we can talk about how those things uh, fit together and how those are refined. Um, but how has Soho been going? How's the run this, this year? It was a short, uh, it was a short 
run. It was just because it was so last second, and I want I was coming over to see friends anyway, so I tried to get a few shows and kind of pay for the trip. Uh, I was nervous just because I haven't done a show in London in four and a half years, and I didn't want to do the whole good news set again, obviously. But there's that worry of, like, what's going to make sense? You know what I mean? Especially considering people always tell me, we have your television, we get your politics. And I'm like, no, you get some of the television, and I don't talk about television very much. Sure. And when you get politics, you get the main stories. Like, if I have a... Like, I ask people, what do you know about Joe Biden? He's the vice president. Do you know that, like, he says stupid things constantly? Not really. Well, then I can't really talk about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you almost have to set it up a bit more. So, um, you know, it, the shows went great. I wrote a lot of stuff the week before and on the plane. I wrote stuff the day of the shows, too. And it was exciting because, you know, when you have a new joke and you're really excited about it. So even if it isn't polished and perfect, your energy and excitement and the fact the audience kind of like, they know that you, your eyes have opened up a bit more and you're excited about something. So even if it isn't point by point perfect, anything that's new and exciting that comes out of your mouth, they're into. Yes. So that's how a lot of those jokes, when I felt like some of the, the newer jokes actually were some of the most exciting moments because I really didn't know where they were going to go, you know? Sure. Um, so it was really fun. And it, and it was also kind of a, a source of pride that I wrote stuff the day of shows and the day before in a country that I don't, I'm not normally in, and they worked. Yes, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I'm I'm kind of trying to. It's it's really funny meeting comics when you. I mean, we met like for two seconds many years ago. Yeah. But meeting comics when the majority of my experience of you is your online presence sure. and your your self mediated. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, it's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So um, like so you have this podcast with your brother, which you do yeah. sporadically. And uh, like that's got a really nice promo photo. Right. Your album is really nicely put together. And so I'm kind of like, oh, Ken Hardy is totally one of those guys who's like super on it. And so the first thing that kind of went off in my mind was you going, so I was coming to see some friends, so I thought I'd try and put some shows in as well. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, that's kind of like <laughs> keeping with the, the kind of the... Uh, Well-structured. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I'm interested to hear that, that doing, like writing new stuff on the plane on the way here yeah. is a source of pride. I absolutely identify with that. For me, I'm sure it's in a much smaller way, but like landing anywhere and going, oh, and you're almost like checking yeah, the locals. Yeah. Is it really hack to uh, suggest that yeah. some, something about the side? <laughs> I mentioned the, the monarchy. Is that hacky just by an American mentioning like the Queen in any way? Yeah, is that right. already hacky. Or uh, I mean, I spoke to Ahir Shah, who's a great mm -hmm. comedian, like right before, uh, and was my Edinburgh roommate in 2011. Oh, right. okay. So we cool. kept in touch. Bonded forever. Yeah, through the, through the, the hell very of good friends. And uh, I called him maybe. A month or three weeks before the uh, the couple of shows I was doing in Soho, just to like run through new jokes I was doing in America. Do any of these make sense? Does okay. this work? What do I have to explain in this? And then we sat down the day before the shows uh, to say, you know, and I was asking questions like, "What is your equivalent to Pittsburgh?" Yeah, yeah, right. And okay. he's like, I think people will appreciate you saying Middlesbrough. All right, good. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and plus, I was like making jokes I didn't quite understand, like. I had something about um, the royal, like the, the uh, William and Kate naming their first kid. And I'm like, I was curious if they'd name their kid India so that India would belong to the UK again. And and then I, 
I asked him if I said World Cup, like if they named their kid World Cup, would people laugh and like, oh, they boo, they will, yeah. boo. and that's exactly what happened. And I was, love that you did it anyway, regardless. Oh of what yeah, because I ended up turning it into a thing of like, I like making you angry. Yeah, here's another thing: you all should do a British version of The Office. Have you thought about that? And then, <laughs> and it just, it was fun because it was like the idea that I could actually poke people. So after I said the World Cup thing, I was like, I don't even know what that joke means. Yes. I have no idea what that means. Um, so I think there's something, I get to be a certain character in certain ways, like the American that doesn't quite know what's going on, but also a comic who knows how to fill in blanks. Because there's something yes. about that, because it's kind of, you're deconstructing the fact that like, when you're a comic, you're going everywhere and you're plugging things and there's some formulas, unfortunately, for certain types of jokes or certain things that you plug in a city or a specific reference and it'll work the same. Of so it was kind of, it's fun for me because I get to like do that and show how it's like, yeah, just plug in a thing and I know what buttons to press. Yeah, I'm right. And, I, I, think I, I think I gained a cultural awareness of Williamsburg purely from right. the context of like Shortage. the way it was being used yeah. in jokes. Like I hearing on yeah. American albums, whenever they'd mention Williamsburg, yeah. I had no knowledge of that geographically, and I went, that must be like Shoreditch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like just gentrified and annoying, and maybe it was artsy, but now it's totally bought by rich people who are trying to be artsy, and like, yeah, same dynamics. Yeah. But still cool, yeah. So you're, you, you, you're clearly a worker. You're clearly someone who sits and writes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've changed how I write, but certainly, yeah, like I, um, I think it, when I started um, doing comedy, every word was written out and it almost felt like I was doing a monologue and maybe other comics have the same kind of stuff where when someone would laugh at a point that I didn't expect them to laugh, it was the same as heckling. I wouldn't know what to do because like, you're not supposed to laugh there. I expected you to laugh here and you, know, you get over that. But it always found it. I always found it so scripted and tight, and it, which eventually might happen anyway with my stuff. But I started writing bullet points. Like here are the main things. Here are a couple of lines I think are funny, and how do I get to those lines? Because because okay. you want it to sound like a conversation, even though it's a monologue. And the best way to do that is to not actually know what you're going to say initially. Um, okay. When yeah. did that? When did that come to you in the life of? I mean, how long have you been doing stand up now? I started when I was seventeen, so. 15 plus years but more seriously where I would go to a club every night probably 2005 to so 10 years okay yeah and you were your background and I suppose if you started when you were 17 it was uh, it was what was going on at the same time well I was going to mention that you did a, a degree in comparative politics yeah that was in university yeah okay which is to me like a that's like a perfect grounding for a political comic, right. probably because I have a very limited understanding of what comparative <laughs> politics means, right, right, and it yeah. sounds like it's comparing politics to things. I'm like, oh yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah, comparing like political systems in like in different countries and things like that, okay. and and it's kind of like political science as well. Um, it was it was fine. I don't know how much of that had the the impact because honestly, I feel like me becoming a politicized person. So not just, I mean, because you can be somebody who studies politics and not be someone who has very strong political feelings necessarily. You could be more of studying the thing. Um, but post 9-11, certainly that was the thing that made me a political being, shaped me. The world had changed. I, I, you, you almost, at least I was forced to question why did this happen? What was the country I was living in? Thinking about the hate violence that was happening. 
um, within the U.S. against the Arabs and Muslims and brown people. And even in Queens, New York, where I grew up, which is the most diverse place in the world, the idea that that would happen there, like, shook me. And so I was on stage at that point in my career. This was in university. I was, like, 19. And I was, like, doing really hacky things about, like, what my parents were like and, and voices. And um, I, think, I think it's the pitfall that a lot of comics you know, do like get into early anyway, like they fall into the trap of whatever it takes to make people laugh, whether it's hacky or not. And I think a lot of comics, um, yeah, I mean, whatever you are, like, I think often like you use whatever is easiest. So I think as a person of color and whose parents are immigrants, that's the easiest thing, right? That's the first thing I know will make people laugh, especially like most, like it's a, it's a mainstream white audience. Well, Apu is this caricature that's been around mm-hmm. forever and that was the only representation we have. So that clearly the funny voice works, whether or not like this stuff is clever or not. So I think that's where I started. And post 9-11, I'm becoming politicized, questioning the world, thinking deeply about things. And I'm on stage just saying nothing. And I had a tough time with that. Like once it really hit me how, um, you know, that dichotomy, how like bizarre it was that this is one part of my life and this is the other part. Um, that's when I think I started becoming maybe more political on stage. So and do you think... Do you there think- wasn't a formal education necessarily that... Create I understand. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you, and just in the in the timeline, there you were nineteen, so you yeah. were already embarking on that degree, or you, were, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. So like, so you were doing it from the point of view of study, and then it mm. started to mean something. Was it say it again? Sorry, your your degree, the comparative uh, yeah. politics. Yeah, yeah. You were studying it as an interested. As a student, I was studying it as somebody who didn't know what they wanted to do with their life, and I, you know, got into some courses that were in that particular. Um, you know, I took a couple of classes in that particular area, and I liked it, and I kept pushing that. And there's some professors I liked, whose lectures I liked, so I kept you know, going to those professors, and it kind of just fell into it. Like it wasn't like my love or anything, you know. And at that point, I'm still thinking maybe too because I wanted to go to law school and. You know, comedy was a hobby. You know, it wasn't. It was never uh, something I considered realistic. And keep in mind, at that time, uh, you know, there weren't any South Asian comics who had made it. Like I discovered Russell Peters through the internet at that point because the you know the internet started booing. This was like two thousand, two thousand four in that area, and this is pre YouTube. And so, like, there was a lot of Asians, East Asians, South Asians in colleges, and Russell Peters had a Canadian special, and it got leaked on, like, Napster and all these, like, early file-sharing kind of things. And so with the high-speed internet access, like, we download these things, and that's the first time I saw a South Asian comic, really, who was successful and on TV, but that was Canadian TV. So at that point, there were no role models. Like, my hero um, at that point was Margaret Cho. She was the first comic who wasn't black, Latino, or white to do um, stand-up that I saw on television. And it was, it was like a little, like, it, it, it put in the possibility, just even the smallest seed, that maybe it was possible. But it was so far away. All, again, all we had was, like, um, Apu in a series of caricatures, you mm-hmm. know, uh, from films. It wasn't like we had anybody to say, this is possible. And, and uh, you know, the Son of Indian Immigrants has... has room for that like when I was in college Aziz started making a little bit of ground he had like um had a website and I'd seen clips of him at UCB and I'm like this dude's in New York my senior year of college and he he was still in, at university at, at NYU I think and he was doing stuff and it, it was it was inspiring like oh he's in New York and he's pushing and he's young and he isn't he's talking about things that I talk about and I'm interested in versus like and Russell Peters had just a very different style and he was older and mm-hmm. he had been on the road a ton it was a very different kind of generation sure. so 
I certainly didn't think this was real. Did you did you recognise a change in a lot of other comics around mm. the time of nine eleven? Did you do you feel um, that you were unusual in that you went, hang on, I'm what, what am I doing? I'm saying nothing. I I don't know. I don't know. I did see a rise in um, Arab, Muslim, Indian, South Asian comics. I saw more of them, which makes sense, I think, in a way, because I think we react to um, pain, like as with a defense. You know, comedy is a defense mechanism. Humor is a defense mechanism. I think that was maybe one reason you saw a rise in like brown stand-up comedians. Um, so I saw that. There's certainly comics who, after a certain number of years, I'm like, now that 9-11 is four or five years past, you don't have anything else. And that was the one thing you had to kind of get in, and, and you're still talking about it, but not with any nuance, you know? And initially, yeah. it's like, whoa, you know, this is shocking and new, and, and it is kind of a, a, an interesting way to fight back, you know, against racism and the things that were happening. But after a while, you're like, so got to do the job of a comic and write new things and explore other topics or explore that topic in greater depth. So. And do you think, can you think of a, a standout bit of someone else's that you felt, ah, oh, they did the, the New York comic who was there when it huh. happened and they expressed what everyone was thinking? God, not off the top of my head. I definitely, this is more broad, but I definitely, the two people post 9-11 that had albums that affected me and I thought really covered a lot of that post 9-11 stuff and that's just not just about 9-11 but everything that the lead up to the war what was happening were Mark Maron and David Cross yeah Mark Maron's first uh, record I think was called was it Not Sold Out the second one's called Tickets Still Available so I still love <laughs> uh, it's very Maron to do that um, and you know he's moved away from the political stuff now compared to right after 9-11 like he was really in it that first record mm. and when I see him I always tell him like it was the the first album is the one that um, got me the most. Mm. You know, every, of course, everything Marin does is, is good. But the first one really spoke to me because it was right after 9-11 and he was talking about, you know, politics and the FBI having, you know, and, and uh, phone tapping, stuff like that. And David Cross was so aggressive in that double disc, the Shut Up You Fucking yes. Baby. Yeah, yeah. So aggressive. And, you know, The Daily Show totally succeeded you know, by talking about Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bush and all the things that were happening, this came out, like, around that time or a little before, like, The Daily Show really, like, cut their teeth on that, where that was everything, you know? And the way David Cross addressed it so aggressively talking about the administration, and this is during a time where, you know, people were made to feel like you weren't supposed to criticize the government, everybody had to be patriotic, patriotism meant not questioning anything, like, it was drilled in us, you know? And... Uh, terrorism and attack uh, in America was new. So, like, it was, you know, it's not that we hadn't been to war before, but this was attack on the American mainland uh, by a foreign entity. That was new. And so people really, you know, were unwilling to say anything. And David Cross releases this disc, and he's talking about 9-11 the day after 9-11. He's talking about the administration, the, the fact that we were, you know, killing uh, Afghani citizens with our, with our bombs and, like, just incredible stuff and he found a way to make it funny and even the moments that weren't funny were poignant and interesting and it felt like this is there's a Lenny Bruce type feeling to it of danger and I'm going to say and Hicks you know I'm going to say something and even if it doesn't the the laugh immediately it has to be said because this is too important not to say Um, those two certainly hit me really strongly and it it were early inspirations of like why am I not talking about the now (laughs) 
So this is Hari. We will tear straight back into this interview. I'm sure you're keen to hear more from him. And uh, what a lovely guy to talk to. And one of those people as well, one of those comics who is so switched on, knows exactly what they think about everything. And we managed to get into some really interesting stuff. More of that in a minute. You must download his album. Uh, It's called Waiting for 2042. And you can get it on the indie label Kill Rockstars. It's also available on Spotify, Bandcamp, iTunes, all the usual places. And check out his website as well for his live dates if you're in the US. And uh, and if you're in the UK, you can find out when next he's planning to be here. I'll try and give you some advance warning. But that album is absolutely brilliant. So do have a listen to that. Um, other things very quickly. Of course, I'm going to mention the tour. Of, well, I mentioned at the beginning, there's the Soho uh, shows, which are uh, Dave Gorman on the 4th. And uh, no, not the 4th. Dave Gorman on the 7th. I'm so terrible at this. And Romish Ranganathan on the 4th. So come and see those 7th of March and 4th of April. Um, of course, I'm going to mention my own tour, which is coming starting at the Glee Club Birmingham on the 4th of March. That is just around the corner. I can't wait. Um, some of you have very kindly put some posters up for me. That's very kind. I've been doing bits of press and bits and pieces like that so if you if you do see an interview or you hear a thing on radio that i've done chuck me an email and let me know that it's worth it (laughs) yeah yeah are you a you probably are a big enough representative sample size of the population that if none of you get back to me and say i heard your interview with such and such then uh, maybe it wasn't worth doing is that the right way around no that's not how you're supposed to think about pr more on this later. Glee Club, Birmingham on the 4th of March. Just the Tonic, Nottingham on the 11th of March. Now, Just the Tonic is a really, it's a really great independent club run by a fun lunatic called Daryl. And uh, uh, we don't know, I think there's an awful lot of confidence in the fact that, oh, it's Just the Tonic, it'll sell really well. It's not sold that well, but it's a lovely room and a lovely club. It's in a place called uh, Daskino, which is a little a smaller kind of mini venue. It's a very cool venue. Um, I'm really keen to get some people to that one. So if you are in or near Nottingham, if you're in the East, North or whichever bit of the Midlands Nottingham considers itself in these days. Oh, God, that's turned them all off. Um, but please do come along to that on the 11th of March. Outside the box in Kingston on the 14th of March. The Old Fire Station, Windsor, on the 17th of March. Uh, 22nd of March is the Hawth Theatre Crawley, which, I mean, I'm not saying it's definitely going to sell out, but for some reason, turns out I'm massive in Crawley. Get along to that one. Excess uh, Malarkey in Manchester on the 23rd of March. 24th of March is the Wardrobe in Bristol. Brilliant, brilliant new venue. Uh, the Joker in Southend on the 27th of March. The Golbenkian in Canterbury on the 29th of March. And on the 30th of March, the West End Centre in Aldershot, another one that's selling really well because the venue there are really super on it and push it and promote it and all know what they're... They, like every member of the team in Aldershot is working really hard and, and in a very focused way, so very much appreciated. And I will tell you the April dates later. I won't go through... It's, it's Hemel, Milton Keynes, Bath, uh, Norwich, Leicester, Northampton, Wolverhampton, three days at Soho Theatre from the 21st to the 23rd of April, and then Sutton on the 27th, and then, of course, the Secret Welsh Festival, when that is. I'll do more detail about those at the time, but if we can, I mean, just come to Nottingham. Bristol's selling well, Manchester's selling well, Crawley's selling well. Who knew Crawley? Um, And the others are kind of, yeah, the the others are definitely, there's enough people for a show, but it'd be great if there was enough people for a show. So come along to those. Um, You can still do postering stuff by emailing, uh, emailing me with the subject line, uh cavalry of course it says on my notes something new about donations please (laughs) that is a note to self basically 
Uh, I am so grateful and I want to thank you so much for the donations that you've been giving me over the last couple of years. And uh, more and more, I'm seeing people do blog posts which refer in passing to the model that I use on this podcast of making the show free and uh, giving it away for free and just busking and looking you in the eye, looking you in the ear uh, and, and just saying, hey, this is worth something. This thing that you're listening to and enjoying is worth something. So... I really appreciate the response that we've had from that. You can make a recurring payment, if you like, uh, at, uh, at comedianscomedian.com. There's a, I think you can do forward slash donate, but you can find the link on the, on the homepage. Um, you can make a, recur- a recurring payment via PayPal or Moonclerk uh, or Clark, if we're being British about it. Um, or you can do a one-off donation via PayPal. You can sign up on Patreon, anything like that. If you believe that this show makes a tangible difference to your life, then that's the way it works. And uh, I, I think I've been... I've started to feel a bit funny about continuing to ask because I've I haven't worked out a new way in which to ask. I've sort of used up all my street performing. It's not tricks exactly, but you you know there's there is something that is the rule of every busker. Look them in the eye and tell them you're worth it. And and I am. And if you can do that and mean it because you are worth it, then then people respond really warmly. And I suppose I don't know what I'm saying is. The donations are trickling slightly, guys, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate all of them so much. And particularly the fact that you can you can put a little personal message to me on your PayPal page when you send it in on the on the email I get, which is a lovely way of getting in touch with people. But I, what I want to do is not blame you for that. Not that there would be any blame, but uh, what I want to do is just. I've realised that it's it's me. It's up to me and the way that I'm mentioning it. I'm kind of. I'm starting to feel. I don't know. I've been feeling like I'm saying the same thing to you. I start to feel like I'm clobbering over you. Do you know what it is? It's that bloody iTunes review where that bloke said, stop asking for money. One review out of 400 was remotely less than positive. And it's got into my head and made me go, oh, I don't want to ask, I don't want to ask. And I remember in the early days of being a street performer in Covent Garden, some guy coming up to me and going, mate, love the show, really enjoyed it. Uh, listen, you don't need to ask us for money because we were all going to pay anyway. And I remember going... Oh, thanks, mate. And he walked away and I turned around and burst out laughing because, of course, the audience aren't going to pay unless you tell them this is my job. This is this is. And this now is. I mean, a lot of my life goes into this podcast. So in a street context, I had enough confidence to go, mate, the idea that I I'm not I I should stop asking for money. That's preposterous. I'm giving you this free thing. I'm putting such a shitload of effort into the the admin and the the uh, interviews themselves. Um, and research and and the fact that I'm in a position to do the interview because I spent 20 years making people laugh for a living, all of that stuff. I've started to, I've realised I've started to kind of back away from it and go, oh guys, you can, you can donate if you want. I'm taking a level. I'm stopping. I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm going, guys, it's worth something. If you want to pay for it, that's great. If you can't pay for it, that's great too. Please don't suddenly have a bunch of students selling me three quid and going, I won't eat now for the next two weeks. That's fine. If you can afford to pay for it, it's up to you to pay for it. Thank you for listening. Uh, there's a couple of T-shirts left. One of them went the other day and I was like, oh, God, yeah, I do T-shirts, don't I? There's some left. If you want one of them, go on the website. Now let's get back to Hari Kundaboli. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> And as a as a political comedian yourself, would you describe yourself as a political for, comedian? For a lack of a better term, because you have to market and explain things to people. Sure. I, I don't only because, to me, it's observational. You know what I mean? Like, everyone, when they observe things, you observe things with whatever lens you have of the world, right? And, and some people spot certain things really quickly because that's the world they see. They look for inconsistencies, right? I have a different lens. It's not like I'm putting on a political lens. I see everything this way. Mm. Like, I don't know how else to not look at things with, like, what are their deeper meanings? What does that mean? Why do you use that word? Like, that's who I am. Those are the things I look for. So maybe, you know, Jerry Seinfeld sees one thing in an interaction. I see something completely different. Sure. Like, I'm noticing the power dynamics, uh, size of the people, the race of the people, the, uh, you know, why did they look that way at each other? What do they say? Language. I'm, I'm looking at a bunch of different things. And my, maybe he's looking at like, you know, why those shoes? Or I yeah. can't believe women are still wearing it. And we're looking at it very, very differently, but they're both observations. Yes. Yes. And I understand why it's political because I think not everyone has that particular point of view. So it's like, oh, you're doing something political because I don't think about that all the time. And that's in a world I don't, you know, it was a different... Yeah, so it, lay, yeah. it lays you open to the accusation that you're banging, that you're harping on about political stuff. I don't know how else to be. This is how I'm yeah. with my friends. This is how I'm with my family. Like, I'm... You know, I say this on stage. I'm a killjoy who does comedy. Like, I'm, <laughs> this is who I am. It's not like I'm choosing. And, you know, there are times where I'm backstage with other comics and we're all riffing on a thing. And I see my how I'm riffing and I'm like, ah, oh, I just killed it. I just said a thing that is not funny to them because it's it's what I find funny and it's always in that particular realm of the world. Can you can a, you think of an example of that? That's oh, fascinating. I've never heard anyone say anything like that. To, I, I can't off the top of my head, but that's happened so many goddamn times. That you've um, been joining in with yeah, you know, and then all of a sudden I make the one comment that has like a it's either deconstructs it of comedy or talks about it from some racial angle or gender angle that just like. Oh, and that's that. And that was the, that was the end of that run. Uh, I don't even know. Like, if, uh, It's like if everyone was talking about marriage and weddings and we're riffing on that, and I'm the one who mentioned, like, yeah. And I bet they weren't even conflict-free diamonds. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and Which I have done with a friend once who was engaged, and the first question I asked was, was a conflict-free diamond? And then immediately had to back off. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? So, so how, um, much of, how much of that... It, it sounds like your stage persona is not so much a reflection of your offstage persona. It just is your offstage persona. It's an, it's an exaggerated version of a major part of who I am, right? Because I think I'm, I'm a better listener, obviously, offstage. And I state clear points of view... I take stands, I have an ethos, and I stick to that, and that's that's what I do on stage. Off stage, I, I still think 
I have strong opinions and I feel strongly about them. I put a great deal of thought into the words I use. There's a consistency there, but I'm not as, uh, like I yell a lot on stage and I'm aggressive and uh, maybe some people say, think certain things I say are mean, but they're pointed for a reason. And um, I use whatever charisma I have to sell harder points, you know, but off stage, like I ask questions and I listen and I, try to make informed statements based on conversations. And if we don't have certain big political things in common, we'll talk about something else. Like I love sports, you know, or I love, we can talk, there's a bunch of things we can talk about, but on stage, that's not the game or that's not what I'm interested in. And, And when you, when you refer to the game, does the game include when trying to make a, a political point? Yeah. Um, does it include the kind of the license to simplify the argument? It, I mean, it's company in general, right? You know, it's it's how do you make complicated things simple? And for me, how do you how do I make them simple? Um, keep enough of the complexity where I'm not like, you know, um, removing the essence of a point or an idea or a person. You know, that's difficult to do. Yes, because you, you can't. You can use only so many words. You know what I mean? And at a certain point, like I, I've always run the risk of because what I'm saying comes from the heart, and there's certainly an earnestness in it of um, either coming off as a lecturer where people are nodding their heads and thinking it's interesting or a preacher. Okay. And I don't want to be either of those things. You, there's a balance there. How do you be passionate and informative but make sure there's enough jokes where it justifies the choices you make? Like, my hero definitely right now is Stuart Lee. Like, there's no question about that. And I know there's a whole generation here that probably has him as a hero as well. And... You know, I, I had a style where I you know, tried to, like, before I... Because I discovered him when I went to grad school at LSE. It was 2007, 2008. And the years, like, leading up to it, you know, I was certainly had long setups and explanations and was starting to try to, re, like, deconstruct jokes on stage and, like, you know, which is very inside comedy. And it was hard and there were weird choices. And I'm like, I don't know. I really feel like this is fun and I don't see anybody doing this. And then I saw Stuart Lee and it was both amazing because I'm like he's amazing and he does it better than anybody and, and I can't believe this, this and the other part of me is like oh he's doing the thing I wanted to do he's doing it better than anybody I wanted to write a joke about how political correctness is good and then he writes the joke about why political correctness is good from an angle I never would have thought about um, it's a sort of institutionalized politeness so it's like the idea of like writing something which in itself isn't funny but is is the perfect way it's to... It's such a good point. Right. It's, it's like, it's a, it's a genuinely, um, uh, I don't even, the word didactic sort of suggests right, it's right. declamatory. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Do you mean, but it's actually genuinely a tool for learning. Like, yes. here's, a, here's a genuine perspective. And it does simplify the whole debate, but it, uh, a certain side of the debate, but it, it, it has enough nuance and thought involved where, yeah, that explains a lot of it. Certainly okay. it could be, you know, you could say, yeah, but it also inhibits people from speaking to each other in thoughtful ways. Certainly, and you could say at that point, it's not just institutionalized politeness. It actually is politeness and it's a deterrent from real communication. But I think the vast majority of the times it ends up people who want to be dicks can't be dicks, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, kind of the angle that he's playing. But, but, so he simplified it, right? But he's still tackling a really complicated part of the issue in a very thoughtful way. And that, to me, is like a goal. Yes. So, so which of your uh, and well, let's confine it to the album. Yeah. Um, which of those bits in 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 which of those bits do you feel you most managed to do what we're talking about? I think the, uh, my Toby joke is yeah. certainly one where I do that because that joke um, has jokes in it that do not work 
the way maybe initially I would hope they would work. And so the explanation of the joke, which both deconstructs it and informs the audience, becomes the joke. Yes. There's a lovely bit when you're, you do the first main punchline yeah. and you're counting one, two. Like, oh, yeah, who's on yeah. board? Who's it's never it? the full audience. I mean, yeah. I probably got more people on board at that particular show than ever because they're there to see me. So, of course, they would have sure. insider knowledge, right? So. And I'm just for the sake of, I mean, let's, if you don't mind briefly butchering the joke, I'm yeah. going to direct everyone to, <laughs> right. to buy the album yeah. and download it. Um, but that particular joke, you're talking about seeing uh, a black woman with a yeah. white baby and considering that one of the possibilities... Is that it's a, it's a nanny that the child's taking care of, but maybe it's a rich black woman who bought herself a, a white child, right? Yes. From inner city Stockholm. Um, but chances are it's a black nanny. And as she as I'm walking by these two people on the street, um, I hear the black woman say to the white child, your name is Toby. Say it, can you say it, your name is Toby. Say it, your name is Toby. At this point, there's members of the audience that are laughing, but a lot of people who are kind of confused and looking at the people who are laughing, trying to figure out what they're missing out on. Yes. At which point I explained that there was a book slash miniseries by Alex Haley called Roots, and in Roots, a slave Quinta Kinte is told uh, that his name is Toby, and he refuses to be called Toby, so he's whipped repeatedly. Um, your name is Toby Kuntakinte Whip, Toby Kuntakinte Whip. Um, so flash forward to my neighborhood in Brooklyn, I saw a black woman tell a white child his name was Toby. There's no one there to see this. Uh, at which point I think to myself, I've been in a writing slump and this is perfect. Right? Yes. Um, and, so, and, it, and the joke goes on a bit more after that. Um, but certainly that's a joke where I get some people off the like, oh, that's brilliant. I can't believe you incorporate. Then I get the people trying to figure it out. And after you explain that, you slowly get a trickle of laughter. And then I see a white woman telling a black, uh, sorry, I see a black woman telling a white child. And then you get everyone else on board like, oh my God, that's crazy. Yes. And you're told not to explain jokes. But it's funny that, and, <laughs> like, to me, why, why are people telling you not to explain jokes when you, you, there's so much room now to play in the if failure? If the explanation is funny, yes, then, then that's additional material. Right, and, and certainly, like, seeing Stuart Lee do that made me feel secure. One, made me feel secure in certain choices I was making before I saw him. And two, inspired me to make even tougher choices. Because at the end of that joke... You know, there's another explanation because I, I talk about, um, you know, the calling the kid Toby is an incredible revenge for slavery, perhaps the best revenge since Jack Johnson, not the yes. white acoustic guitar playing Jan Jack Johnson. The early 20th century black boxer Jack Johnson, whose two major hobbies were uh, having sex with white women and beating the hell out of uh, white men, not the white acoustic playing Jack Johnson, who had no impact on race relations. You know, like, the, I, it allowed me to do it again. And yes, another it's an incredibly rich scene, isn't it? Yes, and it's something I wouldn't have thought about doing, I think, and to that extent, maybe I would have done it once but not pushed it, if not for seeing Stuart Lee's work and realizing there are no limits. Who is to say a joke has to look a certain way? Did you, did you have to... That, I mean, it's easy to kind of look, when we look at an existing bit that works and really yeah. works and yeah. says all of the things you want it to say, and there's just so much in that from such a casual observation at the yeah. beginning. It's easy to look at that and see it fully formed. Did you, as I have seen Stuart do, have to go through a, a period of this stuff not working? Absolutely. So you had, Absolutely. To, you had to go, no, I believe in this, this is funny, I'm going to get there, and drive it into the ground a few times well initially it was funny when I did the joke initially when I mentioned your name is Toby you know 
I, I knew from the first or second time, I need to explain that. And when I realized the explanation was funny, you know, then you know that why am I, I can do this every time. You know, initially it was just out of like, crap, nobody knows what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> if, only, if only they'd done the reading, my right. perfect joke would it's work. like, yeah. this is America, this is an important miniseries about slavery. And I also realized people hadn't seen it since the 70s, even before my time, but I, of course I'd heard of it and seen stuff from it. Most of the people knew what I was referencing based on a sketch in, on the Chappelle show, okay. where he talks, where he does a scene where that, where Twinkie Kante is getting whipped. It's supposed to be bloopers from Roots, right? <laughs> it's brilliant. And people imagine that often who are like my age or younger. And I'm like, oh, they thought of the Chappelle thing, not the actual miniseries, yes. but they still got it. Yes. Uh, which is funny and sad at the same time. <laughs> but certainly, yeah, just naturally I had to explain that joke and it, it kind of formed. I think a better example, though, might be that Weezer joke I do on the album, which is a joke about just Weezer disappointing me and their... Um, you know, uh, he's basically doing songs for teenagers and what if I was doing a comedy that was for teenagers and like, what's the deal with homeroom? You know, uh, you know, don't you hit when your mom tells you to go downstairs while you're playing video game? You know, like really stupid jokes an older person would never make. And the, the thing would start really strong, that joke, and peter out at the yes. end every time. And I didn't want to stop doing it because it was a personal joke I care about. I, I used to love Weezer. It was also a joke I loved because it didn't have anything to do about race or gender or sexual. It, it was about just me being a kid liking a band yes. and being disappointed. And there's something really sacrificial about it. I, I imagine it was quite... Uh, uh, certainly the first couple of times you did that bit... You're, you're kind of killing a pretty sacred cow there. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Hitting that a thing you loved is dog shit now. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> and then also seeing people, and, and you know, I do the, I tried to joke a few more times after that, and it didn't work as well because I realized that the that when I, I just got that joke in before Weezer became so irrelevant to another generation, like there was, <laughs> there was still enough bleeding over from like that second or third wave of Weezer fans for that joke to hit on multiple levels. You know, yes. like old people of my age and a little younger who still have heard the band because they heard him in high school, college. Um, so I just got in under, you know, before the buzzer rang for this album. Um, but that joke would peter out every time and I wouldn't like let it go because I like that joke. And then I realized, why can't the failure of the joke be the joke? Yes. And and that and, and that that revelation did that come about on stage or did that come about whilst doing punch up on the material going how could because I'm sure a lot of comics listening to this will be like I have or you know I have or have had a, a favourite bit which yes. I can't I can't make it work because yes. I can't get out of it well enough so I have to put it down it was it was it wasn't during that one wasn't on stage that was an active decision of like thinking about what I could do. And then thinking about just how it, it would peter out, and I and I thought, and then and that's what hit me, like like Weezer, Weezer yeah. starts strong and really gets bad at plateaus for a while and really goes downhill. So I I, I tell the audience like on on the record like you might be wondering why did that joke start strong and then plateau and end so terribly. Well, I wanted to write a joke that echoed the trajectory of Weezer's career. Yeah. You know, so, and that, at that point, all the failures throughout are justified. It no longer... That's an incredible piece of comedically having your cake and eating it. <laughs> right, right. Like, I can make the joke I want for me and a handful of people and for everyone else. It's like, oh, you know, we were we were lulled into a place of security and then, you know, bored for a bit, but it all gets explained at the end. Mm. And, uh... 
again, I, I don't know, I, I've mentioned this really five times already. You might have to edit two or three out, but I don't look insane. <laughs> but, you know, when he does the bit with the... Um, on 41st Greatest, again, when he when he chisels on the grave. Yes. And it is so slow, and even as a fan, tap, tap, painful. Tap, 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 tap. Like, yeah. he's actually chiseling as if he's actually chiseling every letter on. Like, he yeah. could have done it shorter, but of course he wouldn't, right? And I think to myself, well, it's because it, it, it's going to go where it goes at the end, right? You know, and, and, and that, like, the, I can't do that just because I don't have that level of patience, I definitely want more punchlines. I want it to be punchier and quicker. And styli- like stylistically, we're very different. Our voices are very different. Our personas are very different. But like that gives me the courage to like, oh no, like I just have to sell it. Like I think this is funny because I do think it's funny, even if it's failing. I need to sell it as if they're laughing, even though they're not laughing, because they still see me excited about it. And if I can turn it at the end. It'll be justified because I never make it sound like I'm bombing, even though clearly there's silence. Yes, that that is, I think, one of the more I, the more comics I talk to, the more I think about this. That's one of the most important skills, I think, in comedy is to be able to to keep going when they're not laughing. Yes, to keep believing when they're not laughing, knowing that sometimes on a, you know, you're trying out stuff at a game, yes. whatever, you have to, to find that line, you have to keep going, and then at the end they don't laugh. And you have to go, yes, I, I kept yeah. going for five yeah, minutes yeah, yeah, nothing. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and the first one or two times you kind of acknowledge it, they laugh and like, ah, oh, well, you gave, you know. I mean, if it keeps happening, that's a different issue because then it's mm. like it no longer feels charming. It feels like, make us laugh why are we wasting our time but the first time or two it's like they give you a little slack especially if you start strong enough that, you know what does it look like when you are sitting writing are you writing in a pad or on a laptop or what's I, and what do you have yeah. a timetable what is a what is an average I wish I had a timetable I mean I think I need some time pressure and so certainly you know there's this romantic vision of things come to me when they come to me and there is still some of that where I write down, I used to write, I used to write on a, in pads more, then I started writing on an, on my iPhone, and I realized I was producing more slowly, partly because I'd forget things around my iPhone, and also um, I would tweet things, and then all of a sudden, it, the gratification I would get from people laughing, I was just getting with random numbers on a screen, 48 retweets, 120 likes, oh, well that joke's done, it's not done. Yeah, <laughs> what am I that's, talking yeah. About? Like, yeah, this these, this means nothing. That means what? A couple hundred people saw a thing, uh, and I don't even write short jokes. So what am I doing right now? Wasting premises, you know. So one thing is I print out my tweets and now, or like try to go through them to start write, and then write them down on paper. Because I notice that when I write something on paper, it feels real again. So even if it's in my computer, I forget. Once I put it on paper, I actually take a pen and put it in a notebook like I used to, which I stopped doing for a couple of years and I started doing again, it becomes real. The words stick in my head better. I'm more invested because everything I do on the phone, I text or email, I don't remember what I wrote. It's not real. It doesn't feel real. I'm just pressing random things, random keys, not even keys anymore. Yeah. And yeah, I'm almost, there's nothing tactile (laughs) about it. There's something about the tactile nature of writing or pressing a thing. I remember the pattern, the thing I wrote, the thing I touched. Nothing. I'm just hitting a screen. I don't feel anything. And I forget lines. I forget, like, words. I forget ideas. As soon as I put them on a, on a page, though, it's real. And when it, once it's on the page, yeah. what tools are you using to pull it apart and, and kind of find the funniest funny? 
in an idea. I mean, the hope is like uh, the the premise. You know, when you first have an idea, the best things are like one when you first have an idea, and because there's all the like hope in the world with that idea that it's gonna be <laughs> yeah. the greatest thing you've ever written. The hard part, and then and then when the bit first goes on stage and it gets a couple of laughs, even though it's not complete, you're still excited. And then at the end, when you basically have the bit down. Everything between those stages sucks. Yeah. <laughs> because it's full of fear and frustration and bombing and questioning. Like, one, like, from stage one to two, okay, I have a funny line. I actually have to look at it later objectively. I don't have anything here. I have a couple of good lines and no way to get in and no way to get out. Okay, I have to build some structure, even if it's bullet points, to actually get on stage build the context it's on stage the lines aren't working I believe these lines are funny what did I do to screw up where I can't sell this right do I rewrite the beginning ah oh, crap I'm getting wedded to bad wording because I've said the bad wording oh, so many yes. times right that's my god that's yeah. such a wedded to bad wording yeah. I'm like well that's the way I've said but it's never worked yeah, no, I have to say it that way. Yeah, because the I, first time I did, they laughed. Yes. A hundred times since, they didn't. Not acknowledging maybe they laughed because you had energy when you did because it was the first. Maybe they laughed because the joke before it at that time fed into it perfectly. Maybe you need something that stands alone stronger without any context. Maybe because there was, a, there was three old jokes before it that were very similar in theme. So when you brought this up, it, it fit in. Now you don't have that. So how do you get to that? I mean, uh, which I don't know. Is that the same here? And I ask because you all do our new hours every year, mm-hmm. and you and, and as opposed to the U.S., where well, that's not necessarily a goal. Like we, it's more like some things get washed away, new things wash in, and mix with the old things, and it's just this gradual back and forth. We, I think, uh, we would all love it to be like that. Yeah, <laughs> but I think in the landscape of British comedy. To feel like you're involved, you have to be turning over an hour every year or that the other year. That seems so wasteful. It, well, yeah, and that comes up on the podcast a lot when I talk to American X. As someone said uh, uh, recently that, uh, now who was it? It might have been uh, uh, Dave Anthony. Yeah. Uh, it might not have been. I, I went to the LA Podfest to do a bunch yeah, of American yeah. comics. And uh, he was talking about, or this person, whoever it was, was saying that, yeah, we, we know that you do that in, in the UK, yeah. and we feel sorry for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not that you're better than us, because you're turning over more stuff. And I know some British comics would sort of already, when we talked about... I think you work you, harder. Well, do you, do you? Yeah. I think you all work harder. I think you work harder because you're constantly thinking about your next hour, so you can't get lazy. Because if you get lazy, everyone will know. Also, you have fewer cities to play in a smaller country. Sure. Like, you cannot get lazy. You can't go back to Edinburgh with old jokes. People will know. Reviewers will keep you honest because people actually watch it and consider this an art form. Yes. So they actually review it as an art form. Yes. Well, that's an, actually, that's a very positive perspective on on what is a perennial problem. I mean, I, right, I think right. we would all love everyone in the UK and those uh, uh, comics who work here. I think we'd love it if someone just announced, you know what, 2020... Is 2020 is going to be do your best of <laughs> well it kills me because it, that whatever that best of is is going to be so diverse thoughtful and loaded because you're sticking to themes so much like you know some, like, I like the fact that I don't need to stick to a theme and I have yeah. a r- range of subjects and it's, it lets me be a fuller person I also love the idea of course of like 
finding a theme and exploring a topic, but the fact everyone tries to do it, even if maybe they're not equipped to do it. I think it's changing now. I think there is a sort of, a, 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 I don't know if it's a backlash exactly, but yeah. I think there is a reversal whereby people are going, there are so many, themes are there so you can stand out. Right. Now everyone's doing a theme. So actually, maybe you'll stand out if you just go, this is just But stuff. it feels like you also give your power away. Do you know what I mean? Because every year you're dependent on Edinburgh. Every year you're dependent on management companies. Every year you're dependent on investing money, owing people money and taking a loss, hoping somebody finds you and gives you a break so you get out of debt. That is awful. I don't understand why you all don't record your stuff and put it up because like, there's Spotify, there's Bank, and there's all these places where you can build your own audience without people like having to give you a thing. And honestly, they will come find you if they see like number of Twitter followers or Facebook or the fact you're selling out venues. Like Kitson did it himself. He doesn't require that. He has an email list. It's a Hotmail address. My God, it's a Hotmail address. <laughs> and he does shows at 10 in the morning in Edinburgh, and he still packs it because he's good, and he found his audience. So I don't understand why people don't do that. Like, yes. Why are people not releasing things and finding their people? I think people are starting to. People are just starting to. And I think we're way behind the stakes in terms of our appreciation for the internet and how it can be used to leverage your career. Right. And I, considering you're more productive, it seems even more useful for all of you. Absolutely. I really think it's, it's starting to change now. But I also think that, that what we describe as a dependency, I think it's important to point out it's a false dependency. Because if you think of, or if I, just to use my, my own uh, personal experience, Experience. I haven't been to Edinburgh and been discovered, but mm. I've been there for, I'm, I'm writing my sixth hour at the moment, and I have um, improved enormously as a comedian. Yeah. And the way that I find the positive in that is rather than think of them as wasted hours, or, you know, there's an hour I don't even have a recording of from 2011, mm. had some really good gear in it, a lot of which I can't remember. Right, right. Didn't even take it. Right, right. Didn't even do the audio. Um, but it's the only positive way to think about it is that is all training I'm just, I say this to newer acts all the time is Edinburgh is a month on the heavy bag yeah. and the advantage is that you is when in late September you do a 10 minute spot and you just fly through it because but you haven't you ever had a bit that you did early on that maybe wasn't strong but the idea was great and you still did it yes. and five years later all of a sudden even though it doesn't fit anywhere you're at a point in your life where you can actually do that bit and write something better because you have a greater understanding of it yes absolutely and do people go back or at that point is it like it's already gone yeah you, this comes up on Facebook every so often where comics are going hey other comics is it okay to revisit oh, a thing I did? What are they, what are they gonna say? They can all go and to underneath hell. All, all, all the other comics are going some comics are going, you should go for it, it's your stuff, it doesn't matter. And other comics are going, Well, do you wanna get that review that says this is a great show, but he's recycling material. Hey, you know what? It, and it's it, awful that we think like that. Absolutely. I'm not here's what I think, and this is something I, I have said before, but I, I've I really believe it. And the reason is that because I feel like if I'd gone through like the mainstream system of just going to New York and trying to work there, I think I would have been discouraged and quit comedy in part because it's so hard. And I don't think my stuff, um, because of, of, like, I talk about aggressive things and it doesn't always work and I would have gotten discouraged and other comics would have said, why don't you do it this way? You know, I think I would have lost some of my uh, my momentum, right? I started doing comedy in Seattle. I built my own audience, right? I never thought of it as serious. I just did it for fun. And I, I built this audience that appreciated what I was doing was for me and it allowed me to take risks where maybe with other audience I wouldn't have taken risks, right? And I think, and I realize, well, people will say, well, then you only know how to play to your audience. Well, no, because I still did gigs that weren't my audience, where I wasn't headlining, where I was just doing random shows. And I think it teaches you two different skills, right? When you're performing for anybody, people you don't know, 
there's defense involved in that, right? Mm-hmm. And by defense, I mean that, like, joke isn't working. You have to find a way to fix it. Something you wrote maybe that isn't working, and so you have to figure out how, how do I explain this to people that don't understand what I'm saying, don't have my experience, don't have my politics, don't know my family. How do I explain that to them? So you're forced to explain to more people and still try to keep the essence of the point that you're making. Or you're dealing with hecklers and you're thinking of responses. Whatever it is, that's defense. You're learning to build based on things not working. Offense is when you have a crowd that loves you. They understand you. They get you. And the momentum you get from laughter is a different moment. You don't have a defensive mindset. You're talking to friends. And when you're talking to friends, don't you riff a lot? Don't you think of more things, ideas on top of ideas on top of ideas? Because you're allowed to explore a topic because they get it and they show you by laughter. Those are two different things. So it feels like, sure, you're saying that, like, someone will criticize you if you've done that bit before. But let's say you're doing that bit better than you ever have and it resonates with people. You're going to think of more on top of that and on top of that. So a bit you did in, at Edinburgh five years ago when you weren't that good with a show that wasn't that good all of a sudden opens up a field that could be 40 new minutes or 30 new minutes and you didn't even bother because you did a half-assed premise five years ago. And I feel like you're, you're missing out on offense you have the defensive part down because it feels like everyone here is being defensive because mm-hmm. they're worried about their next hour reviewers, Edinburgh reactions. What about the part where people just love you? The part where, like, again, because I know so little other than Stuart, like the fact where he quits comedy, comes back, finds his audience, and then takes the risks he wants to take because in the mainstream rooms he couldn't, and now he can perform anywhere he wants because he found enough people that love what he does and he's trained an audience to get it. I don't understand why this Edinburgh thing is so important when it just puts you at a loss and gives you a mindset where you don't have control. I mean, that's absolutely reasonable. I think it's about fear. I think that the fear is that we'll disappear. Right. Everyone wants to, you know what I mean? You, there, there, it seems to be such a limited range of opportunity, a limited range of opportunity on uh, on TV. There's a one or two shows that if you get on, you feel like that There's is a couple a of stand-ups and everything is panel. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, just to get in, to be one of the seats at the table, to be one of the available slots in the uh, the very small amount of airtime available to a newer comic. Yeah, maybe, hopefully it's changing a little bit now. But to get those things, to stand out from the person next to you, it it's fear. People, people, Comedians in this country go, I can't risk rocking the boat and of course at the same time it's the people who rock the boat who then go on to be successful there are plenty of people who rock the boat and don't right you know there are plenty of people who have really good stuff who do it in a weird iconoclastic way and don't get anywhere they're not playing the game there's the Kitsons and the Stuart Lees both of whom are phenomenally skilled and very very talented and there's a bunch of other people who have Try doing it their way. Like Simon Munry, for example, who's like brilliant, but he doesn't get the respect, maybe. that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know if I would put Simon in, in that camp um, okay. because I think he has... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've not talked to him in detail about it, but I'm sure he has got some of what he wanted. Some of... Okay. You know, he is successful. Yeah. But there are people, and I, 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 I can't really name them because it seems oh, yeah, to me yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah, they yeah. haven't done very well. Sure, sure. But there are people out there, and if you're listening to this, I'm not talking about you... Um, <laughs> which is true with anything anything we say just keep that in mind so you can listen to this without feeling bad um, but there are do you know what I mean we, we want to take risks and we want to be iconoclastic yeah, and we yeah. go no I'm doing this my way 
But how do you keep up that level of self-belief? It's easy to look at Daniel and go, oh, he's got, you know, he doesn't get yeah. to 10am. Well, yeah, because Daniel is the sort of act who 99% of comedians that go and see him yeah. come away experiencing that feeling of, I should do this for the rest of my life and quit. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> Stuart Lee, Daniel Gibson, those are people like that. Yeah. And it's great to be shooting for that kind I of... I feel like Kitson more so, to be honest. I yeah, think Stuart Lee, because it's so specific, it's like, fuck this guy, I'm going to do something else. With Daniel Kitson, it's like, oh god, he does everything. Yeah, everything, stories and shows and jokes and riffs and he has jokes he can do. But if he wants to just improvise, he can just do that, and he's yep. just as funny. And he has a stutter, and it does not matter at all. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. I saw him. He used to change these, and we can fall over Daniel briefly because there is not one fucking chance he'll ever listen to this. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember seeing him getting years an angry hotmail <laughs> email. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing him years ago doing a line that I'm, I, I, I think he used to change his. He used to have stutter material that he would rotate very frequently. Yeah. And, you know, he would change every year, and he was stuttering for a bit one time, maybe ten years ago. And I said, so well, half of you are getting frustrated with this now, and the other half of you are admiring my courage. I mean, I heard oh him my say God, that. that's such a great line. He did that. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was up the creek. Is that right. the, the, yeah, yeah, it's, right, it, yeah, yeah? It was the Sunday, Sunday, no, what's it called? Sunday show. Uh, Sunday special? Sunday special, yeah. which I've heard that's the one show you want to do at Up the Creek, where it's like. Oh, it's a very different, it's run by different people. Yeah. It's a very different gig to the. It's like an alternative gig. Commercial, yeah. yeah. And I, I got to do that once, which was so much fun. And he was on that bill, and I guess he had, he was doing stand up again for the first time in a while, because he had stopped just to do the shows. the the stories and the, the yeah take some time off come back be brilliant brother. yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> and uh, he, you know he addressed that like half of you know that I'm a you know it's a legendary comic because many half of you have no idea who I am so it's but he he had a moment where he's telling something and he started stuttering a, a, to the point of distractions up to that point he just it's fine he bulldozed, bulldozed through it and he had that line which I feel like that's probably the only time he repeats a thing, right? When he just needs it to just get past that, right? I, I've seen him do seven or eight different versions of, of that. A, a, yeah. a joke, no different versions, but like different jokes about coping with the fact he's got a stutter and it's, it's right. annoying something, you know. Right. Variations on it. How did we get on to Daniel? Um, uh, oh, yeah, so this is the, the anti the anti Edinburgh. Right, right, right. He's right. soon to be famous, Harry, comes to the will be famous for people like, what does he know in America well, with this system? You've been. You've been to Edinburgh. Yeah, it was, it was hard. I don't, I just, and I did um, Comedy Zone, which, so there's four of us, so we split the loss. I mean, that's how I viewed it. Like, it was fun. I made some incredible friends, and all the folks I did the Zone with were still friends, and I, like, love them. Like, we just got really close. But, like, it was, like, we split a loss, you know? Which, you know, we paid off, and it wasn't that bad because it was split four ways. But I kept thinking about the guy, you know, the guy that really thought he had the show and momentum behind him who just takes a huge beating, you know, like what yeah. happens? To, I mean, what do you do? You just pay back your management company slowly over time, or you you just what do you do with the loss? I don't understand. How do you how do you cope with that? There are uh, what I make, used to do. How do you not retire? I used to, you just I used to try and make the money beforehand, so at least I was spending my money rather than being in debt afterwards. I did that for a few years. The year just gone. I did the free fringe for the first time in about eight years. But couldn't you just and, buy a house? <laughs> I could have. <laughs> I All did, these comedy houses year, right now. Like free fringe works this year. You make uh, money, but right, I don't right. know if it's sustainable if everyone does it. I don't. But the thing isn't sustainable. <laughs> it's like one of the degrees of sustainability. I'm just imagining all these comedians with 
houses and partners Absolutely. and cars that they... a close friend of mine who's a comic it was something like £20,000 in debt to his management and had to make enough money to leave his management you know it's insane it's insane do you know but why this wouldn't work in the US you have healthcare here yeah we would never the amount of loss like I mean that's also why I think some of you take more risks in certain ways than we do and we're just thinking about like I gotta do these jokes to make sure I make people laugh so I get booked again so I make money you have healthcare here. I think that really gives you an advantage. I think our fear of constant death, I think, keeps us a little bit more like, fuck, if it works and it, it gets me back booked again, fuck it. Yeah. So your special that you recorded in mm. Oakland, yeah. something that I was really taken aback by, and I don't want this to sound critical, but I'm interested in your thoughts on it. I, I, it's so full of jokes. I mean, it really it, does that represent like the best of your stuff? Yeah, up to that, up to that, up to yeah. that point. Yes, absolutely. The audience are so phenomenally on side. Yeah, that there is more cheering, and yeah. I mean cheering rather than laughter. Yeah, there is more cheering on that album than any other album I've heard. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, who was your hype man? Like Flavor Flame? Or what? Yeah. <laughs> it was the most initially the most horrifying feeling. Because I did two sets that night, and uh, the first set was that one. And I always imagined what my album would sound like when I got to that point, and it did not sound like that. I've done these jokes for years. They never had an audience respond that way. People sometimes will cheer get excited, but not to the point of almost distraction, where you're, that's the premise. That's not the joke. And you're supposed to laugh here. Why are you cheering? We're not at a rally. And I remember getting off stage... And my friend W. Kamau Bell was there. It was a good friend of mine, great American comic. And we had done Edinburgh, actually, the same year I'd done it. And also, I don't think we'll ever go back to it. Yeah. <laughs> we both were like... Yeah, it's a shame. Good. Fantastic show. I saw that oh, show. he's... Oh, that was such a good show. Um, but Kamau was there. He surprised me by showing up to the, uh, to the recording. And I get off stage, and... I mean, they were still incredible, and it was an incredible set. And he gave me a hug, and I'm like, that was incredible. That was one of the most ex- incredible... He didn't say shows, he said experiences that he's ever had. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, they were cheering and they were making sounds I've never heard an audience make. And he's like, yeah, but like, how many comics get their audiences into such a frenzy? Like, the Beatles did things like that, where the audience can't control themselves when they see you and you say things. Like, they they absolutely are in love with you. Like, no other album's going to sound like that. I'm like, yeah, no other album's going to sound like that. I'm like, and he's like, yes. Don't you want an album that doesn't sound like anybody else's album? Your, your, your album's going to have a story. Your album is going to have a, a unique tones and textures that no other album has. You know, and, and I, I heard him say it, and it made me feel better, but it took a long... I didn't edit my album for a long time, in part because I couldn't stand that. And the second recording was less of that, but it, it was just... It was more of a straightforward comedy recording. And the bulk of the album is the first recording, with a couple of pieces of the second one, just because I stuttered here or there. There's something that didn't go quite right. But most of it was the first one. And I made that decision um, because, one, the energy I had was greater in the first one, because I think I was feeding off their energy. And secondly, I really thought about that time and why that album sounded that way, as a document, why I wanted it to sound that way. And it's because the Trayvon Martin verdict had uh, come out the week previous. And, uh, and so we're dealing with a time where everyone who would have liked myself would have been heartbroken, as I was, the yes. fact that George uh, Zimmerman was found uh, innocent of killing a child. And uh, in Oakland, uh, of course, there was the story uh, of um, 
of Oscar Grant, who was murdered by a police officer on New Year's Day, I think the year previous, two years previous, and there was a film that came out called Fruitvale Station about that murder, and Fruitvale had just been released. So again, people are reliving the horror of that, of what had happened. Um, the Trayvon verdict came out, and so it was very, especially in, in, in the Bay Area and in Oakland, and there were rallies up the block from where the theater was, where the new parish was, where I did the, the show, the venue. And the night before, and there was fires, and there was some clashes with the police. It was a very tense time, uh, which I did not know till I got there. And the people that would have gone to my show are people that would have been there, are politicized people. A lot of, uh, the, of the fans who really love my stuff are students and organizers and social workers and people who are very passionate about the things I'm passionate about, in addition to just comedy fans, because, you know, I've done TV and stuff. You have people who just like comedy, and, I'm, you know, as much as I think the, the material sometimes, um, for a lot of people, dictates the work, I'm also proud of the fact that it's well-structured and well-written. Like, I put a lot of time, you know, political points are just whatever. I'm not proud of that. That's just what I believe. I'm proud of the structure and how I write jokes. But So you get a broad range, but there's a lot of people, especially in Oakland at that time, who have been through a lot. Between the Trayvon thing and what happened, just up the road from that venue, who came to that. So of course when I'm on stage saying the things I'm saying about race and about the government and about violence and about poverty, they're going to react that way. Mm. They're going to be screaming. And when I got off stage, people not only were telling me it was funny, they kept saying it was cathartic. We needed that. You have no idea what this week was like. We needed that. That seeing it in that light is fascinating because that may, that gives it a whole other layer of meaning and answers that question for me completely. Yes. Because that moment when the you know you have that line about people saying I'm obsessed with race. Yes. You know that's like telling uh, me I'm obsessed with swimming when I'm drowning. Exactly. And I feel like that resonated even greater that night because of how they were feeling. And then when I when I went on a little rant at that point about Trayvon Martin and yes. all the people that were that were killed. I think I did that in part knowing how this crowd was reacting. And also I got out of it by saying this is the slam poetry part of the show. Yes. Like acknowledging the fact that, yeah, this, this crowd's a little different tonight. Yeah. But like, you know, now looking at it, it's still, you know, part of me still wishes, and that's just a straight up comic part of me wishing it sounded like most comedy albums sound. But there's a part of me that knows it was special and different. And no, not everyone's going to know that story. And there certainly were reviews of the album, which were the reviews I feared, saying the the audience totally takes me out of it because, you know, they're just so with him that they can't. And there's other people who listen to it who are extremely, whoa, that's so exciting. I can't, I can imagine myself in that room and feeling that energy. Yeah. And you know what? I'd rather have those people. Absolutely. It's it's a very different, um, knowing that, it's obviously that that, that that show is in that light, it's a very powerful yeah. document. Almost wishing I had video of it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think that would have been... Because the, the comic you are and the things you're talking about, absolutely, how could they not resonate with that kind yes. of... Uh, with that reaction? And the second crowd still had that, but less so. But in the second crowd, I think I subdued myself in order, hopefully, and I did, to subdue them a bit. But as a result, the joke had not the same level of energy. That first show... I was like, I talked faster than I normally talk because I was just, the energy in that room I, I have not felt in a while. Like I've had shows where it's just, you know, but that one, I think in addition to the, 
the pressure of the recording and that the, the fact that we're cheering and I'd waited my whole life to have this moment to have a document, you know, uh, it, it was incredible. So I had to use the first recording and that's why it sounds the way it does. That's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, is there in the world of, and again, you know, I'm, I'm calling you a political comic for the sake sure, of no. the question. Yeah, but what, what elements are there of kind of hackery within the realm of political comedy? What things do you need to tread carefully? Or, yes. or what things do you, you know, hear yourself thinking and go, oh, I get a bit obvious? You don't, I mean, and that was another fear of the album of people reading it a certain way, but like, you don't... I didn't mean that question in like no, 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 but certainly, but it was something I thought about, like as, you know, you're saying, because they're connected, like not wanting your peers to think, you know, like, oh, there's too much clapter here. People just clapter. Yeah, 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 got it. And, and, you know, and like, part of me is like, well, if they're happy, they're happy, you know? Uh, but there's other part of me that, of course, is aware of that. So, I mean, the idea of saying things that simply people cheer at because they're easy like during the Bush administration saying fuck George W. Bush like it's cheap you know or you know people like or the other side like support the troops like that's uh, you know saying obvious political things it's almost the same way of people saying men are like this women are like this it's like the political version of that like it's just hacky and you know what the jokes are going to be so like actually making sure that the joke is nuanced well written and thoughtful and not solely dependent on the point. Do you know what I mean? Like, it still it has works to, as a joke in itself. It its works as a joke yeah. in itself. Yeah. Like, the thing I was saying, that like, I'm proud of my stuff not because of the politics of it. That's who I am. I'm not going to be proud of my politics. That is what it is. That's my lens. That's a given. But man, that was... I had three callbacks in that joke. I Complete misdirection. The album structure has a joke intentionally failing, that Genghis Khan joke, which shows up again 25 minutes later. Yeah. That, to me, is why it's good. It's because I wrote that in, you know? It's, it's, so it's being the... And I think this is true with all political art. I don't think it's just true with political comedy. I've seen enough political art where I'm like, I agree with this, really well said. This is fucking boring. Yeah. You're playing acoustic guitar and you're not playing it well and you're saying things I've heard before. And then you hear political art that is not boring, is really, like, smart and thoughtful and just whoa, I've never heard people throw words together like that. And I've never heard play, people play their instruments like that. You know, like if Bob Dylan couldn't sing and if Bob Dylan couldn't play the guitar as well as he played, he would be boring. Oh, it's Bob at the protests who just makes all the noise. You know, it was the fact he was good at what he does. You have to be good at the skill set that your art like demands. And so as a comedian, you have to be good at writing jokes. If, you know, and that's the main thing. And if you're good at that, I think that some of those pitfalls go away because you're self-aware. You're self-aware of what's been done before. You know, if people think you're hacking, it's because they've heard it and they've heard the joke before and they've heard the angle and, you know, it's been said either by another comedian or just by another person in general. So what, uh, what review has most wounded you? Coming away from the, oh. the, the, uh, the album... And that reaction about the clatter and all, you know, those kind of reactions. I think it was that first review, that was the review I was fearing. I forgot which, it wasn't a major publication, but it was a comedy publication. So it felt like it was in, it was like within family, you know, saying, it was pause and saying like that I'm a really, you know, smart comic and make some really thoughtful things and make good creative decisions and all that. But it also said like how much the crowd took that person out of it, which was my fear. And, And it also was like, 
you know, and, and which Kamau also, and, and Kamau is a friend who we're very similar and he knows me well enough. And, you know, he said like, you're going to have some folks who are comedy fans, just love comedy who are not going to get this. I definitely think that review, um, that, you know, basically uh, acknowledged my fear that there was too much clapping and cheering was the thing that hurt me the most. But, uh, my friend Kamau, um, you know, always knows the right thing to say. It was saying that like that, he told me ahead of time, like, that's what you're going to get from like a lot of mainstream com- com- comedy kind of things. Right. Cause they're only going to think about it a certain way. Um, then, but I think there was a review I got in the New York times that it was positive. It was actually very positive, but there was a critique in it that initially stung. But the more I think about it, it was a really good critique. And it was that like that, like, like the album that it had amazing points in it more or less. But the thing he said is that that was a really exciting comic and it felt like I was so the gist of it is so tight with the script. I lose certain really honest, genuine moments that I could have created by just being looser Yes, almost that you're, it's kind of too, um, what's the word? Not, not overwritten exactly, but that you, you are kind of a slave to the script and the points that you're making. Yeah, and I think part of that is my first one, nervous, wanting to get every word right, um, old jokes, stuff I've been doing for a long time, some jokes I hadn't done in a while, but I wanted to have it documented, um, I think also the audiences, like, there wasn't much room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, sure. The audiences. It, particularly yeah. bearing in mind that you you really mean this stuff. You really mean it. Yeah. And very honestly and very yeah. genuinely. Yeah. And actually that could, yeah, I think that's a fair point. But there's a playfulness that I feel like um, when I don't have a, such a partisan crowd that isn't there to see me, there's a playfulness that... Um, gives me a lot more room to work, even if everyone's not on board. Um, and that playfulness, I think, is missing in great part on the album. Like, I come off as a great writer and somebody who's funny, but, th- I mean, that's one thing that actually comes across more in, like, interviews and podcasts and radios. They're like, oh, yeah, fairly, I'm charming. Like, there's, you know, I know that. Like, I mean, there, there's, there must be some reason I've been in relationships other than just, like, like I think that, like, uh, there's, there, I, I feel like I know how to um, work a room, as comedians do, and talk to people and interact, and that that's missing from the album. And I think that critique... Um, and again, it bothered me. I'm like, but why are you talking about the writing and all these things I did and the little tricks I did? And, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, from a technical standpoint, that's, that's great, but people like that. People like feeling they're with you. People like feeling that you're having a good time. And it's not simply, uh, this is my uh, mechanism for delivering my thoughts. Absolutely. It's not a thesis. It's a human connection with a human. Yes. And not to say there aren't moments there that have that. And there's some moments addressing the audience or hearing certain laughs. And sure, but there could have been more. And that's a fair point. What things that other comics do, do you wish that you were better at doing? Oh, man. Like what what traits of other comics are, are you most jealous of? Um, there is a, I see comics who the moment they get on stage, they're loose and I have moments like that, but like there are comics who like, I'm so in my head. Sometimes I'm thinking about what's the first thing I'm going to say, what joke am I going to say to start? And the sets that honestly like go the best are sets where I riff something off the top and I'm loose because they laughed and everything after that is just, you know, because you already, you got them and they know you're with them. And I feel like. I get so wedded to, well, I want to do this joke that I don't let the, the show come to me. I, like, force it. 
Um, yeah, I can't be making these people laugh. I've got to get my joke Exactly. <laughs> and so I, whenever I see, like, you know, I mean, Hannibal seems like he's comfortable from the moment he gets on stage. Like, there's a bunch of comics who, like, as soon as they get on stage, they're them. You don't need, they don't need to establish themselves. They're them. And it's not because the crowd all knows who they are. They just are that comfortable. But, oh, yeah, I'm in charge. Don't worry. Like, and I feel like I wish... Um, I think I have that more than I did when I was starting, which every comic has, but I wish I had that even that commanding as soon as I got out, it's me. Um, and I'm funny and I'll, I'll just go with it. Um, so yeah, definitely that. I've met like Rory Scoville. Have you, have you seen Rory Scoville? No, a couple of people have emailed and said, I've got to oh, check him out. I'm Rory's so funny, man. It's like, in some ways it's like the second coming of Robin Williams in some ways in terms of his speed, his improvisation, his goal in comedy has always been to do full hours improvised, which he has done a handful of times. It's almost like a, I'm thinking of a baseball analogy, but pitching a perfect game where there's no walks and no, uh, and no hits, and it's like yeah, you've done everything and no errors, you've done everything perfectly. That's what that feels like to me. Like, he doesn't want to do material because he finds them to be a crutch. Like, and so I see that and I'm like, I, the most I've improvised is chunks of like, what, three, four, five minutes? you know, in, in a row. This guy's doing a full 40, 50, an hour improvise. Like, that's incredible to me. To be so with your audience that, you know, your brain isn't worried about an agenda. The agenda is making them laugh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. And, and the material is just, we'll get to it if I need it, but I shouldn't need it. And what then, finally, what is your goal? What do you want to achieve through comedy? Um... I want to leave a body of work that I'm proud of. I always loved the fact I could hear albums from different comedians and specials and see their growth. You know, whether it's hearing, like, hearing Chris Rock's first album, like, Born Suspect, and you see a Chris Rock that, like, has some of the tools but is not as polished and the jokes end a little sooner. And he feels a little clubbier to, like, the persona you see when he's uh, Bring the Pain. When you, all of a sudden he's bigger than life and it's almost like a preacher who's hilarious and he's stronger and then when you get to like a couple albums that are never scared where he's more overtly political where it almost feels like you're seeing elements of Paul Mooney who's a huge influence of mine like he was another comic that changed my life is, is Paul Mooney and his race album if you haven't heard it is oh my god it's brutal seeing him perform in Washington DC in 2003 made me want to force harder conversations like that was the about race like making, if you're going to make a white audience uncomfortable, it's fine because you, it's your truth and you'll find your people. Mooney is incredible. But seeing Chris Rock and Never Scared, like, oh, he's being more political in this way. Or he's telling these kinds of stories or a joke that's more like a traditional joke, almost like a street joke, like he's experimenting. And to be able to see that is really cool. And I want to be able to, like, create a body of work where people can see my progression because that's what comedy is, right? Like, every album, like, when people say, well, Louis C.K. is inconsistent because in this album he says this, and that album he says this. Yeah, they're, like, five years apart. You don't think he's grown? Like, and that's what I love about it. I want to let people see how I've grown because I want to make sure I grow in a period of 10, 15, 20 years. And if I get the opportunity to have a television program or get to write scripts that get bought, like, that that work is consistent the way my stand-up is. Because stand-up, we control. That's ours. Nobody can touch that. Actors are, you know... They're told what to do. They're, somebody else controls them. We have control of our work. And so I would hope that I, I'm able to create work in other places, too, that feels the way my stand-up feels, which is genuine and from the heart. And I want people to know that the stuff I did, I meant. And I tried the best I could to say what I meant. 
so that one year, maybe 20, 30 years from now, people mm. can say, well, I preferred uh, Hari's second album where the audience right. the fuck up. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and, 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 and of course, the other goal is consistent health care. That's, I think, a goal for every American artist. <laughs> consistent, <laughs> solid health care. Yeah. That was Hari. I mean, what an absolutely brilliant, brilliant bloke. What a really invigorating conversation. It fills me with energy just thinking about it, listening back to it. And um, uh, he, he's he's got so much to say. He knows exactly what he means. He's got opinions and everything. He is definitely going to be someone that I was going to say we're going to be hearing a lot more from. I mean, Jesus, what is this, the one show? What I mean is he's someone who, oh, yeah, I'm like, um, who did I see recently? Hannibal Buress has got a new special out on Netflix. And I remember when I saw Hannibal's name, I was like, oh, God, yeah, I had him on the show like three or four years ago. And he is just going up and up and up and up and up with, you know, The Daily Show and all the rest of it. And uh, I think Hari is someone that I'm really excited about seeing where he is in five years and 10 years and 15 years, because he has just got the the passion and the drive and the the comedy bones to really, really explode in a, in a positive and career-based metaphorical way. So that's Hari. Get the album Waiting for 2042. I just, I'm pushing that harder than usual, not because of some arcane deal with his agent, um, but uh, simply because I... I was just in love with it and I, I've played it more than once in my car and uh, it's, it's just a belter. I want you to to listen to it. There's another little thing I'm going to advertise which benefits me not at all. It's someone else's project, but I'm going to leave that for the waffly bit. So for now, uh, that concludes the podcast. There is a little clip. Ah, OK, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I've been making little YouTube videos when I interview people. I've been doing odd little questions, the comedy gravestone question, the uh, the uh, what would you say to yourself after a bad gig, a little sort of time capsule thing. And I'm putting them on YouTube. It's youtube.com forward slash comcompod. So have a look at that. That's after the, the Twitter handle at comcompod of the show, as I'm sure you know. Have a little look at that. And uh, I'll put Hari up there. I'm going to put the Nathan Caton one up there. Um, they will be up by the time you hear this. I promise, brackets, I've got a new baby. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to start doing them from now and hopefully keep doing them. And it's just one of those things where, oh, God, can I afford to add another strand to this? Can I afford more time, um, editing time and, and stuff like that and, and recording the things and, and having to remember to do it and having to, to get over procrastinating to do it? Um, so it's another thing, but again, this is what, that's what the podcast started off as almost five years ago. So I've, I've given it, I've given it a bash and they're just little additional things and that I'm hoping people will, you'll enjoy them online. You get to see the people that, uh, I'm, I'm talking to in the environment in which we were talking and also people online might discover them and then find the podcast. So we're always thinking, ladies and gentlemen, that's the pod. Uh, I'm just going to keep chatting for a bit now, but if you just came here for Hari, see you next week. So... The thing I was going to tell, talk to you about was, um, is it, there's a couple of things. One, one is called, a, a dad put me onto this. Uh, a dad called, um, ba, 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 didn't write down his name, but he sent me a lovely uh, email called Jab Day, which was a, a lovely, <laughs> it was a, a, a really sweet uh, description of how awful it feels when you take your baby along to have their jabs and someone puts a needle in them and, and you want to fight them. And uh, funnily enough, Tom Gleason has an amazing routine about that. Do you remember Tom Gleason? Look him up from the back catalogue. Um, I did him in Australia for the for the I did him for the podcast in Australia a couple of years ago, and we were in New Zealand. In fact, Tom Gleason is so funny. He does a he does a bit on YouTube. He's a bit on a show in Australia 
that I don't remember the name of. It's a comedy show. It's a sort of Mock the Weekish type thing. He does a section or did a section called uh, I Hate You Now Change My Mind, where he does incredibly abrasive interviews with people that he hates. That's got to be worth checking out. Um, but Gleason had a brilliant, brilliant bit of material about having his baby in his arms and getting the baby, the, the baby had injections and then you take the baby away and like, the punchline of the bit is, but what I wanted to do, and he does this incredible rant of like kicking the nurses out and like grabbing the baby and running down the street. I am, um, I've already experienced a tiny bit of that. I injured him myself. I injured the Boutros two days ago. I was clipping his nails and I went slightly too hard in and I cut his tiny finger. That's not, it's not child abuse, guys. Don't come and lock me up. But I cut his, t- his, his heel now. But he's a tiny little figure. I, f- I had to go and sit in another room and have a cry. Because I injured my baby. God. How primal is that? You, you, I have a hard time believing bears can eat their babies if they're hungry. When I can't clip my one's nails without needing to sit and weep. Anyway, this lovely listener sent me an email called Jab Day. And... Uh, in it, he advertised... I'm going to see if I can find his name, because that is that would probably be respectful. Um, but in it, he... Oh, there we go. Uh, Timmy. His name is Timmy. Just Timmy. Fine. Um, so uh, in it, he told me about rockabybaby.com, right? And this is not an advertising feature. This is just a thing I'm into that I, I couldn't keep to myself. Part of me wanted to, because then I could use it for presents without... You know, I could go, oh, I've got you this super cool thing. I'm a cool guy. But uh, now I appreciate all the uh, the dads and mums who are getting in touch with me. And I think these work as things for grown-ups as well. They're designed to, certainly. So even if you are not with child, um, this will... Uh, you'll probably find something in this. It, it's... Uh, albums, complete albums, uh, done in a lullaby style. So they've swapped the kind of the vocals and the guitars for glockenspiels and bells. And t- it sounds awful until you listen to Bjork. They've done a Bjork album. They've done uh, a Radiohead album. You can listen to Karma Police done in a rockabye, you know, in a lullaby sort of style. They've, done, they've got Kiss, they've got Metallica, they've got Def Leppard. And um, you can have little sort of 20-second samples online. So go and check that out. I sort of, it occurred to me that I could write to them and go, uh, hey, guys, I really love your product. Do you want me to advertise it? Do you want to give you some money? But I thought I'd just tell you about it because it's great. Um, so that's that. And although, okay, well, this is, this is the other reason I didn't want to um, uh, uh, offer them any kind of advertising revenue was because I was thinking about it. I discovered this at like 2 in the morning. And uh, I was thinking about it again this morning. And I thought, is that a good thing? Is it a good thing? So you can probably hear the boot in the background. They're whinging on. Um, is that a good thing to take Radiohead or... I mean, I, I'll be honest, I'm less worried about it in the context of Death Leopard <laughs> or indeed Kiss. Big, simply because they're big, chunky... There it is, bang, that's the stuff. But music that is a bit more kind of uh, surprising and un, uh, unusual, like Radiohead or Bjork. I'm not making any kind of value judgment here. I, I love me a bit of Death Leopard. But... Is it okay that we're introduced? Because then the kid will one day grow up and hear the Radiohead song and he'll go, oh, some some grown-ups put some words to that nursery rhyme, you know, that nursery sort of tune. I don't know if it's a good thing because really what you want, ideally, is just to play your kids some Radiohead and you've been a cool parent at the beginning of their life and so they're used to volume and they're used to interesting music. My, My little godson, he's 10 now and he's not that little anymore. And uh, his favourite song, genuinely, with no prompting, is Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division. Because he's got cool parents and they played him cool stuff. Um, So, rockabybaby.com, brilliant idea. But 
Is it? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the thing is, it does work for parents. They're just covers. Of course it's a good idea. Take the kids out of the equation. They're an interesting cover. Do you remember a few years ago when suddenly everyone... What was it? Maybe like seven years ago, everyone started doing mashups. Everyone suddenly went, oh, you can, you can get, uh, you know, independent woman and you can mash it up with the Grange Hill theme tune and it kind of works. And that DJ, in the way that DJ Yoda is good at doing and, and not many other people are good at doing. That was a while ago. And then everyone got into covers and suddenly it was brass band covers of everything in a way that Hackney Colliery band are really, really good at doing. And others are like, yeah, okay, well, that's, that's that. Okay, we've heard it now with trumpets. So, um, so let's take the kids out of the equation, and actually it's a good thing for grown-ups that is done through the medium of... They bloody should be giving me some money because I'm spending a lot of time on this. Um, anyway, two more things to tell you. Uh, Leicester Comedy Festival, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm doing two things. I'm interviewing Spencer Jones, a.k.a. The Herbert. He is one of the funniest, one of the most naturally funny people I think I've ever seen. I saw his show at Edinburgh uh, this year, last year. And uh, he walked on stage. I have never known anyone get so many laughs from an audience just by walking on and looking at us. You just go bang, wallop, funny bones. There it is. Four o'clock this Saturday at Blob, uh, Bob's <laughs> Blob's Bundabus. That's appropriate. Bob's Blunderbuss. Four o'clock this Saturday at Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival. I'm going to be interviewing Spencer. We've sold 10 tickets. I believe there are 20 more places on the bus. So jump on that. It's pay what you want. Uh, and also at 8.15pm... Uh, I'm at the Criterion pub in Leicester, uh, also under the auspices of, uh, of Bob Slayer's uh, Fringe, uh, Heroes of Fringe. Uh, pay, what, it's pay what you want, basically. Turn up. Um, and I'm doing This Is Actually My Sixth Rodeo, which is the working title for my new hour, which is full of stuff. It's got a bit, it's got a really good bit about bread. It's got a really good bit about Airbnb. I've mentioned some bits of this to you along the way. So if you want to see where it's at now, a clear five months before it needs to be ready um then well it kind of needs to be ready sooner but you know five months before last chance then uh then you should come and see it because i've got i've really got the bones of some good stuff there and the rest of it will be not dissimilar to me flapping around in the manner in which i'm doing now but in a, an even more structured way so that's all of that stuff and the last thing does anyone else have a parent who has remarried and insists on an email address that uh, goes to both of them. <laughs> what? Why? Why? It's okay. So my dad, my dad and my mum broke up when I was like twenty or twenty-one. So a long time ago, sixteen, seventeen years ago. My dad now lives in Spain, and his uh, new wife, a very lovely lady. I won't tell you either their names. We'll just go dad and. No, I was going to say dad and not mum. <laughs> that sounds awful. Um, but uh, she's very nice. She's very nice. She has a filthy sense of humour, which is sometimes fun and but often inappropriate. And you're like, oh, you don't, I don't need to know that. Um, but she's very nice. And um, they have a joint email account. So if you want to, if I want to send an email to my dad, I have to send it to name and name at internet. And like... That, for me, it's like, of course, you know, there's nothing I need to say behind anyone's back. I'd just like to have the option to say something privately. That's not wrong, is it? Is it? I just, it, it's, it, it's, it's like a preemptive strike is what frustrates me. Name and name, like, call them, you know, uh, say it's Brian and Anne at gmail.com, which it isn't, so don't email that. <laughs> But Brian and Anna email. I don't want to always address Brian and Anna. I don't want to. It's like if you ring someone up and they immediately put you on speakerphone. You're like, 
can you take me off speakerphone, please? I actually wanted to talk to you. I don't like the idea of my broadcasts being heard by people that I don't know who they are. Ha, he said, doing this in a room to <laughs> thousands of people all over the world, um, many of whom were sensibly switched off by now. Um, so speakerphone, that's another bloody annoying thing. But the it's like the, the joint email address, it's like someone, you know the bit in a movie or a TV thing where someone goes, hey, anything you need to say to me, you can say in front of my partner. And like, yeah, fine, but don't open with that because all it makes me want to say to you, like I didn't need to say anything to you privately before and now I do want to say something to you privately and what I want to say is, don't fucking just get your own email address. It frustrated me. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's not really important, is it? But this speakerphone thing's annoying. Do you know what pissed me off the other day? I was, the last thing, I was making a cup of tea for my lovely lady. And uh, I was making a cup of tea because I was being nice. I wasn't having a cup of tea. I was just making a cup of tea. That's my job, role of a new father. You can't do the boobs, so you've got to do everything else. So I'm being the quartermaster, and I'm really enjoying that. I know what's in the kitchen. I know what's in the freezer. I'm cooking more than ever. We're eating healthier food than ever because that's my job. That's what I've been focused on now, at least until I start hacking up now motorways again. But it's been a lovely couple of three weeks. I've made her a cup of tea. And then during it, I had to go and answer the door. And when I came back, she had finished making her cup of tea. So now she like she was totally cool with it. But I was like, no, I was making that. I was doing a nice thing. And now, like, if you make someone a cup of tea, particularly when you're not having one, we're talking about. If you make someone else a cup of tea, then you you're putting some effort in that gets you no reward. Right. You're just doing it to be nice. If you make someone a cup of tea and halfway through it, you're distracted and they take over, then you don't get the feeling of having done a nice thing. You've just done some work for free. I don't like it. I hate it. Speak to you soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.